Well, welcome once again, everybody. Nice to see you. This is a bit of a milestone because we are now at the end of Jesus' speeches. We, over the past few years, have been listening to five speeches that he's given in the Gospel of Matthew. And these five speeches, as I've said many times, echo the five books of Moses, which are of ultimate authority for ancient, uh, the ancient Jews and for Jewish people to this day. And it's, in a, it's perfectly appropriate that Jesus should end his speeches to uh, the people, including us, by talking about the last judgment. So it is an end, indeed. And I have to confess that there have been few times when I have uh, struggled more uh, over the course of the week to try to do justice to uh, a passage. And it caught me by surprise. There are a number of ways in which this passage can be interpreted. Some of them good and faithful, and some of them strange, but somehow drawing nonetheless. And so I want to paint a little bit of a background in terms of uh, some of the um, challenges to um, facing this text. The challenge is that Jesus seems to determine the fate of the nations based upon their behavior. If they were careful towards others in need. And it sounds like the kind of gospel that you maybe grew up with and believed in before you became a Christian. That if I just do enough good to enough people, then on the final day, God will accept me. And lo and behold, here Jesus, at the climax of his five speeches, seems to imply pretty much that. People's ultimate fate, we seem to be told in this passage, is determined on the basis of how they behave towards other people. This is one of the very few texts that um, people that we sometimes call um, liberal, social conscious Protestants draw on. And they want to say, you see, all you have to do is love other people, and in the end, God will accept you. And you can see where they get that from. Jesus draws true groups of people together. He separates sheep from goats, and he says to the sheep, who are the ones who have fed the uh, hungry, given... visited those who were in prison, and he says, you guys are in. Inasmuch as you did it to one of these people, you did it to me. And then conversely, to the other people who were neglectful of others, he says, basically, sorry guys, you're consigned to hell. Well, what do we do with this passage? Well, let me back up and just kind of leave that question hanging in your minds, because I want to suggest an alternative to it. But I do think that whatever else we say about this passage, we have to admit that doing good to other people certainly isn't a bad thing to do. In our old uh, Anglican Church of Canada prayer book, there was one statement in it that always got me. And it was well-intentioned, but I simply had a very hard time taking it seriously. And that is when we prayed for those whose faith is known to God alone. When we pray for those whose faith is known to God alone. Well, what's wrong with that? <laughs> My answer, everything. You can't have a faith in God unless it spills out in how you behave towards other people. And so, uh, no one has a faith that other people can't see. I mean, I think even God's Word would support that. 
So as we pray for that, I think we pray for a very small category. Now, that doesn't mean that my faith can't, my faith can't be nurturing and that my faith can't be growing and that I can't say at times, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. But there has to be an element of belief there that makes a difference in how you live and how you think. Otherwise, you don't have faith at all. John Calvin was one of the uh, pillars of the Protestant Reformation, and his commentaries and uh, theology uh, still have stood the test of time and are well worth reading. He was a very sane, sensible, sober interpreter of the Bible. And he was a champion of justification by faith. And in case you're here uh, new this morning, or in case uh, your ears are a little bit waxy and you need to be reminded again, we believe that you are made right with God, not by what you do, but by the fact that Jesus died on the cross, and there he did it all for you and me. And the only thing that we have to do in order to be right with God is to trust him, is to somehow believe that when he was on that cross, that he was building a bridge between us and heaven. And if we affirm that and we say, Lord, I don't understand it maybe, but I affirm it. You died for me. Your death on the cross is my ticket to salvation. And I want to take that ticket and I want to say thank you. And I want to be admitted to the admission park of your church and serve you from that time forward. Is it about church service? It's important. Is it about meeting the needs of others? That's important. But it's not the crucial thing. The underlying thing beneath it all is whether you have saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Calvin taught. That's what Protestant churches have taught. And that's, to a large extent, what many Roman Catholic churches have come to believe, at least so it would seem. One of the milestones in the past few decades, decades of ecumenical dialogue is that the Lutheran Church and the Roman Catholic Church, once arch enemies, have actually come up with a joint statement on justification. Now, I'm convinced that the Catholics read it the way that they want to, and the Lutherans read it the way they want to, and they're not entirely on the same page, but at least they've got wording that they can agree on. So this is what Calvin said. It's faith alone that saves. But the faith that saves is not alone. In other words, true faith will always be manifested in the deeds that we do one for the other. Through the inspiration of the Spirit, through uh, the activities that God, by His grace, has imparted us to do. And yes, sometimes through our own God-given, sanctified, pull-up-your-socks-get-busy work. So our passage begins with a, a, a vision not of uh, our destiny, but it begins in a very proper place by glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. And it talks about when Jesus comes again. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from each other as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep at his right and the goats at the left. Matthew's concern here, above all, is to tell us that Jesus Christ is God's right-hand man. Matthew and the Holy Spirit here in this passage are thinking of the book of Daniel, chapter 7, where a figure called the Son of Man is presented before God, and glory and dominion and authority are bestowed upon this figure who is called the Son of Man. But even more than in Daniel, here the Son of Man takes the role of God 
And he's the one who sits on a, on a throne. And he's the one who, sit, who receives glory. And I think most people are very clear about this when they read other passages, that Jesus is on the throne. But yes, God is on the throne as well. But Jesus is doing God's bidding. He says in verse uh, 34, Then the king will say to those at his right, Come, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So Jesus is God's right-hand man. Jesus is God. And so here we get this glorious picture at the end of these five speeches of this man who we come to know as Jesus, a humble man who um, is very lowly and who heals people, who's not afraid to get dirty, who's not afraid to help lepers and uh, defile himself for the sake of others, is the glorified God who in the end will one day preside over everyone and determine the fate of all of the nations. The United States, Canada, Britain, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Ukraine, Russia, and on and on it goes. Now he's not determining nations by nations because he sorts out people from the nations and he splits them into two groups, the sheep and the goats. There's a, a website you can go to that tells you what you can get, the person who has everything. Sometimes the question is asked, what do you give a wealthy person? And the Magi, no doubt, at the very beginning of the gospel had this problem. They had been led by the Spirit to know that Jesus was a very special person. And they were wealthy themselves, but they brought the wealthiest things that they could, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and they traveled a long way to visit the baby Jesus, and they presented it before him. And I'm sure that God was pleased with their gift. But of course, God doesn't need anything. What do you give the person who has everything? Well, in effect, Jesus answers that question for us. And if you want to give Jesus everything, find the lowliest person you know. The person in your midst, particularly in your Christian midst, who is somehow overlooked by virtue of I don't know, whatever prejudice you might have. We've got lots of them. We are um, sometimes uh, racially conscious. We are ethnically conscious. Um, it wasn't very many weeks ago when we asked a question about the kinds of people that we tend to discriminate, and one member of our congregation who had gray hair said, ageism. Sometimes we can write people off because of their age. Whatever person it is that is lowly, Jesus says, Inasmuch as you did an act of kindness for that person, you did it for me. Now, who are the people that Jesus is talking about? If you go back to Matthew, let me just stop and say that. Who are the people that Jesus is talking about? Because this is kind of important to the question that I began at the beginning. You see, the universalist humanitarians think that Jesus is calling his brother any human being in need. But in the context of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is not saying that in the first instance. Notice what he says in verse 40, if you look at your front page. In response, the king will, truly, will say, Truly I say to you, inasmuch as you did so to one of the least of these my brothers, you did so to me. So Jesus is highlighting not our need and our, um, uh, his desire that we look after the needs of society as a whole, although that's true, 
In the first instance, Jesus is saying to the nations, to the nations, I will judge you on the basis of how you treated my disciples when they came to your country and they shared the good news of Jesus. Friends, this takes missions on a whole new level that I hadn't even begun to imagine before I began to study this week. You remember back in chapter 10, in Matthew chapter 10, and I've got it on the last page of your handout, and this, I think, is the context for our passage on page um, 8. I have underlined on page 8 some sections from Matthew chapter 10, and in Matthew chapter 10, you remember, Jesus sent out his disciples to the house of Israel, and he sent them on a missionary journey. And he told them that they were going to be persecuted and that they were going to be rejected. And that he would not come again until he had gone through all the towns of Israel before he came again. And he talks about them uh, facing all kinds of hardships. But scholars have noticed the similarity between this passage and the similarity between ours. And when they go back and look at Matthew 10, they see in Matthew chapter 10 that Jesus was not just speaking to the disciples of his day who were going to the house of Israel, but at the same time, he was picturing the bigger mission project that is envisaged in this passage and that is envisaged in the Great Commission. When Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Notice, for example, in verse uh, 18 of Matthew chapter 10, he says to them, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Well, the 12 disciples were supposed to go through the villages of Israel, this little Jewish town, that little Jewish town. And when they'd gone through all the towns in, Jer in uh, Jerusalem or in Judea, they were to come back to Jesus. And so already in Matthew chapter 10, there's kind of a double focus to this, pas this uh, passage. Jesus is commissioning his disciples to go only to the Jewish people, to the local towns, but he also has in mind this broader vision. And that's why he can say in verse 39, you will not have gone through all of the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Well, the Son of Man hasn't come yet, has he? So in other words, Jesus is saying that there's a bigger picture here and that it's the mission of Jesus' disciples to Israel that will last until the coming of the Son of Man. My friends, we're to disciple the Jews. There are a bunch of them meeting here today at Wycliffe College, and they're Jewish followers of Jesus, and they're excited to be Jewish followers of Jesus. They're glad that somebody introduced them to Jesus. Some theologians would say that uh, Jesus is for Christians, and the Jews have their own covenant. But Jesus didn't agree, Paul didn't agree, and the mission of the Gentiles included, first, a mission to the Jewish people. Sometimes I feel guilty as a Christian because I haven't been kicked out of a synagogue. There's one in my neighborhood, and they're lovely people. And uh, I get along very well with them. They hand out treats at Halloween. They're very hospitable. But sometimes I just sort of think, like, maybe I should spend more time there. And maybe I should actually talk to them about Jesus to the point where we have a difference of opinion and I get thrown out the front steps. That's what happened to Paul. And that, I believe, is why Jesus is saying what he's saying in this passage today. He's speaking to us for sure. But he's also addressing the early church. And Paul knew the teachings of Jesus. And the first Christians, when they went into the Gentile world, and when they went into the Jewish world, they got creamed. They got uh, beaten. They got thrown in prison. They got put in jail. They got stripped. They got whipped. They were the scum of the earth, and they were battered and bruised. 
And Jesus says in this passage, when he's talking about the judgment, what's going to determine people's fate, I want you to know from this parable, is how they treated my followers. If they were nice to my followers and they treated them well, it's as though they accepted me. And if they didn't, then it's as though they didn't accept me. We have mission, a missions committee at Wycliffe College, and every week we pray for missionaries. And in many ways, I hope that all of us feel as though we are missionaries. And if you have the gumption, which I hope you do, and which I pray you do by the leading of the Spirit, to share your faith to others, that's a very important thing to do. It, in fact, determines the outcome of the world when Jesus comes to talk about the final judgment. He determines the fate of people in this parable according to whether they have treated Christians well. Now, a parable is a parable, and some people even debate whether this is a parable. And I think I need to say and want to say that uh, Jesus probably doesn't tell us everything that is going to happen on the judgment day. But he's focusing on one thing in order to make a point, and that is to elevate us and to make us realize the importance of our missionary involvement and also of Jesus' solidarity with us. My friends, if someone harms you, here Jesus says, they harm me, and they're going to be culpable for it. If someone is nice to you and kind to you and helps you out, they have done so to Jesus, and they're going to be rewarded for it. I don't know how this applies to you, but there's something that came to my mind very clearly through my own involvement once a year in traveling to the Gambia. I have Christian friends, many dear Christian friends, who um, are as committed to the gospel and who are committed to their, their, their country and their, their, um, their church every bit as much as, as I am and, and, uh, and others of us are. We make five-figure salaries. My friends, if they're lucky, make $10 a day. And the thing that gets me is apart from housing, stuff costs almost the same. And I have to say to myself as I think about this, how do I justify the fact that I have friends in Africa who are followers of Jesus, who have great needs that I'm in a position to meet? Woe betide me if I do not meet them. Because those people are important to Jesus. Another way to think about what we're talking about in this passage today is... Think of this as a, a way to receive Jesus that you hadn't thought of before. Uh, if you've been around church for any period of time and someone says, how are you made right before God? You would say, well, you have to receive Jesus personally in your heart. And here Jesus is saying, yeah, that's true. But guess what? I got a twist on it for you. If you receive one of the least of these, my brethren, you're receiving me. Congratulations. And if you're not, you're in eternal trouble. That places a great deal of dignity upon you and me as ambassadors of the word. But it places a great deal of emphasis on the importance of the message of the gospel. It's the game changer, friends. I have reason to lament from experiences in the past few weeks how nervous and cowardly the Christian community in our own country can be when it comes to sharing the gospel. 
My friends, there are places where it's illegal to share your faith, and Christians are going and saying, I don't care if I get thrown in jail. I'm going to tell other people about Jesus. Here, it's perfectly permissible. But if I put a sign in the street or I talk to somebody about Jesus, I might make them feel uncomfortable. And that is a cardinal sin. Making somebody feel uncomfortable because you've told them about Jesus. How comfortable is it going to be in the fires of hell? And my friends, I would not believe in the fires of hell. And perhaps you should not either. But I'll tell you, when someone speaks from this pulpit, they don't give their own opinion. And I do believe in the fires of hell because Jesus warns us of the fires of hell. He says, these, the goats, will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. My friends, the gospel is a game changer. You and I have a role to play in it. And we have been bestowed with this dignified role of sharing the gospel with others. And so because the gospel is a game changer, you and I as God's people who've been commissioned with the message of the word are God's game changers. And Jesus says, how people treat you who walk the talk and who claim your faith will be determinative. Let me end on two points where I began, and with that I will close. I said at the beginning that there are some people who regard this passage not to refer just to uh, Christians, these my brothers, but to refer to people more generally. And I want to suggest that the way that Matthew's uh, story has been crafted by the Spirit, there's room for both. Because you notice in verse 40, when Jesus is uh, speaking, he says, Inasmuch as you have done so to the least of these my brothers, Christians, Christian missionaries. But then when he's talking to the goats, he says, inasmuch as you have not done to one of the least of these, you've not done so to me. So in other words, it's not as though we should just care for our fellow Christians and ignore those who aren't. That would not be very Christian at all. We're to love our enemies. But our first priority is one another because we're agents of the message of the kingdom, which is life-giving and which is good news. And yes, to others in the rest of the world as well. What do you give Jesus who has everything? How about a little money to the poorest Christian you know? How about a glass of water to the thirsty person on the street? That is determinative and how Jesus ends the fifth of his speeches. And for the next weeks, he's going to go on and he's going to become the king who becomes the least of the brethren. And he's going to take a hit. And people don't know that in the time when they are persecuting this Jewish rebel, they are persecuting the king of kings and lord of lords before whom they will stand in judgment. Amen.